You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Saturday edition of the Weekend Variety Wireless. Does anyone care about poetry at all? Am I out on a limb, cutting it off behind me? Because we're going to do a series, see how it goes, of some luminaries and non-luminaries as well. I'm really hoping for a panel beater from Tiatatu uh, to come up with, um, yes, I'd like to read you my favourite poem. Tomorrow night, Carl Stead is the first cab off the rank, as they say. Carl Stead gets two poems because he's Carl Stead. Go read his stuff. He's awesome. Oh, and just a heads up, uh, we've still got this book on the kakapo to give away. We'll announce a winner tomorrow night. All you have to do to go into the draw to win is go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and use the email form. Make sure you include your postal address and say you'd like the book. That's all. And we'll randomly draw a winner live on air tomorrow night. I'll notify you if you're not listening or if you've downloaded the podcast and you're listening after the fact. Okay, folks. Sciencey stuff as usual this hour. Astronomy later in the hour with Grant Christie. Oh, and a beautiful documentary about the Voyager spacecraft. But next up, the Nobel prizes have been divvied out. Who won the science prizes? That with Sean Hendy, physics, Auckland University. Next. You're tuned in. You're tuned in. Tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Hooray, we have a physicist this week. Sean Hendy returns for a science report. Hello, Sean. Hi, Graham. How are you? Not bad. It's Nobel Prize week. Is That's this ex- right. Is this exciting? It at, is. In it is. academia? And uh, the... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of us... Um, a lot of us try and guess who's who's coming up. Oh, it's uh, like the Melbourne Cup, I suppose. It, it a little bit. Yeah, we don't we don't often wager money, or that you know. But uh, you, might, you might buy someone a drink if they if they get it right. And and often we're kind of waiting. You know, we have a sense in our own particular field who might be the mm. who might be the people that are coming up, the people that made the advances that that we're most familiar with. And we so there's a sense is it is it their year yet? Mm. Um, so we'll quite often have a little bit of a list. And of course, um, if you go to Sweden. You know, and and the, the, they actually, you know, they're, they're deciding. You know, you have these conversations. That's quite quite interesting. You have right. a beer and with a with a scientist in Sweden and start talking about the Nobel prizes, and they're actually thinking about, well, how might how might I vote on this? Right. <laughs> Whereas we. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but yeah, quite a, quite important time uh, in the scientific calendar. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah, you know, it's the it's the. There's a thing about the Nobel prizes as well is that you can win it after a long long time of gestation and oh, people and murmuring over what you've done. Yeah. Like Mr. Higgs. Yeah. Wouldn't get it until it was really nailed. And there's often a very long delay. I mean, yeah. I, you know, the, the, it typically comes yeah. a lot later than the community would. So it's not would, best would work this year? No, no it's not. It's not recent. It's often for historic work, um, and sometimes the work was done when pe- people were very young, mm. um, and they might be getting a prize 30, 40 years later at the at the twilight of their career. Yeah. Um, so so it can, it's, you know, kind of an interesting thing. Okay, well, let's hit uh, bullseye for you, physics. Yeah. Two, two people got the physics prize. I was three, actually, oh. this year. Yeah, and um, it was split. So they, they, they split them sometimes. If they give them to three, they'll be like a half, a quarter, or a quarter, or a third, a third, a third. So this time it was a half, a quarter, and a quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was for advances in, in laser physics actually, um, and uh, the, the, the half 
went to a, a guy, um, Arthur Ashkin, um, for something called the optical tweezers, um, which which kind of do what what they sound like. You can yeah. pick up and manipulate with a laser beam very small pieces of matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so How now small? A physicist says small, and we can have no idea what you mean. Yeah, so that you can, you know, so un- certainly under the micro- under the microscope, you could see you can see an optical p- tweezers manipulating, say, a, a particle that might be a tenth of a millimeter across, mm-hmm. um, and so it's quite useful for um, messing with bacteria. You want to. For example, move bacteria around. Maybe try and understand how bacteria swim yep. um, through a liquid. Um, you can trap them um, in these tweezers, and then and then you know force them through a liquid and see what they do. And um, it doesn't burn them to death. Well, you can you can actually <laughs> you can damage them, but the idea is to um, basically you take a laser beam and you focus it, and you can and and actually materials will. Uh, you know, light is an electromagnetic wave, so it will actually polarise, it will actually change the charge distribution mm-hmm. um, in an object, in a small object, and so you can use that, uh, you know, like a little tractor beam, essentially, using electromagnetic charge interacting with the light, and you can hold something still or move it around. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you if you turn up the intensity, you can do some damage, um, but the idea is that this is, a, this is actually a very delicate tool oh. that we can use to, you know, to look at bacteria, even viruses um, while oh they're actually God. living and doing their thing. Far out. Um, but keep keep them in the field of the microscope and maybe apply forces to them, you know, and we can see see how they bend and, and squish. So, yeah. Do laboratory, laboratories um, buy themselves some laser tweezers because they need yep. some yep. and uh, they so, use them today? So a really good friend of mine, Bill Williams at Mass University, has some optical tweezers. Wow! Um, and uh, if I speak nicely to him, he'll do, do experiments for me. I mean, I'm a theoretical physicist, but I'm really interested in how small things move around in liquids. Yes. Um, and so Bill will, will, will actually take take small particles and move them around in liquids and, and test the theories that I come up with. All right. Congratulations for the half Nobel. That, was the, that was the half to yeah. Arthur Ashkin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two scientists for um, also working with lasers but in quite a different way. Um, so, of course, a laser is a, a, a very coherent beam of light. I mean, normally when you flick the light switch on, you're getting lots of different wavelengths of light. Um, they're actually coming at you quasi-randomly. They're not, they're not coming at you coherently. It's not like, um, you know, you imagine the waves sort of coming in slowly and on, on a beach, mm. right, and very steadily. Um, you know, regular light is a bit like being out in the ocean and it's kind of choppy. Um, but right. laser light, you get these very, you know, it's very collimated, very precise pulses of, of, um, of light coming through. Perhaps tell me if I'm wrong, but the difference between a white noise sort of hiss yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and a C major. And a very pure yeah, um, very wave. pure note. That's that's exactly right. That's a very good analogy. Okay. And so what 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 um so this was Gerard Moreau, who's a French American scientist, and Donna Strickland, who's Canadian. Um, they they mastered using very high intensity but very short bursts. So a bit like if you're trying to you know imagine going into a cave and um, using, trying to use the echo to figure out how big the cave is. Uh-huh. Um, and so what what would be what you want to do is make a very short, sharp noise so you can hear the echo um, rather than a long noise so that that's going to in- interfere. Mm. And so they were using these very short pulses of laser light to look at the chemical structure of molecules and atoms. Wow. Um, so the light can go in and actually excite individual electrons and then you can watch what happens to the to the molecule all those to, to those electrons after you've sent that little 
that little very precise pulse in. Like before when I said a physicist says small and we have no idea, a physicist now saying short. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how do you know? So these are, so these are um, uh, smaller than billionths of a second. So, so we've got femtosecond um, oh, what pulses. Second? So these are, these, are, these are tiny, tiny little pulses. So if you think about... Um, you know, a second. <laughs> That's quite long. Yeah. Um, especially to the type of work I do. Um, the kind of, the, 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 the time scale in which atoms just vibrate, you know, if, you, if you're looking at a, at a material at room temperature, the atoms are vibrating away. They're, they're, the sort of time over which they'll move through their own distance, their own diameter, um, is about a billionth of a second, 10 to the minus 12. So that's and that's the good old English mm. billionth. Mm. Um, so a million millionth um, of a second. So then a thousand million millionth of a second, that's a femtosecond. That's that's kind of the electron. That's how fast electrons move. And that's what he's banging at. So that's what yeah. So that's what these these folk were doing. Um, we're a using thousandth very, of a billionth. Very, yeah. So these very very short pulses that wow. can excite, can really interrogate what electrons are doing. Um, okay. And so the other thing is uh, Donna Strickland's only the third woman to win a Nobel Prize. Um, so. Uh, uh, oh. A physics Nobel Prize. A physics Nobel Prize. Right. Yeah, sorry, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's uh, Mary um, Curie. Curie. Yeah. Um, and um, Maria Gopitmaya. Um, oh, okay. And so it's been, I think it was 55 years since a woman last Good one. God. And so, you know, we've been sort of waiting and yeah. wondering what's going on in the Nobel um, Committee. So they've, mm. anyway, so it was, it was nice to see her um, yeah. uh, get that prize. Good stuff. Uh, chemistry. Chemistry. So actually this is, Little little bit of controversy. Is, is it biology? Is it chemistry? Um, three winners. Well, uh, everything's physics. If you were arguing about physics. it long enough. Well, isn't this it? is this is actually pushing it in some ways. Okay. But these these um, folk were using um, uh, uh, nature to try and make new molecules, um, and so um, one um, one of the winners, Francis Arnold, um, he was using what's called directed evolution. Um, to try and modify bacteria so they'll produce useful molecules. Um, and, and in this case, it was enzymes, which we might, for example, use in antitoxins um, uh -huh. for fighting poisons um, or biofuels and, and biofuel man manufacture. So enzymes are, are catalysts that sort of promote reactions. Um, and, and so, yeah, so they would take bacteria um, and kind of put it through a directed evolution process. So you let the bacteria or promote the mutation of the genes of that bacteria, so mm -hmm. producing new types of bacteria. And then you act as the natural selector. Okay. Um, so like breeding pigeons. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, basically, but now we're doing it for bacteria. Okay. And basically you, you, you direct the evolution of those strains of bacteria until they're producing the molecules that you want. All right. So um, the Nobel Prize goes to his bacterial pets, really, for the yeah, chemistry that's itself. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was Francis Arnold, who's an American scientist. And then the other the other two that won this and they, they again they shared the 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 other half um george smith from the us and, and gregory winter from the uk and they again looking to how how do we turn bacteria into little factories for making molecules we want mm -hmm. and they use something called um phages so phages are viruses that infect bacteria right so we're familiar with viruses like the flu, the influenza virus. Right, so that's a phage with a pH. Yeah, <laughs> the phage with a pH, P-H-A-G-E. And, and these are viruses that actually infect bacteria. You know, we, you can use them to actually fight bacteria instead of um, uh -huh. uh, antibiotics, but you can also get them to go in 
and um, modify the mach- the molecular machinery that operate in the bacteria. That's how viruses make us sick. They basically hijack our cells um, and use our cells to, to keep them, them alive and yeah. to propagate themselves. So can you use phages to do something useful? Um, and so, yeah, they, they use phages to develop new types of peptides, which are the building blocks of proteins, uh-huh. um, really important in medicinal chemistry, um, and new types of antibodies um, that you could use in, in vaccines. Uh-huh. And so one of the outcomes of their work has been um, uh, new ways of fighting cancer. So, so you can um, uh, design and then manufacture particular antibodies, and those antibodies can actually help your own immune system oh, wow. fight the cancer. Cool. And that brings us to actually the next prize, yeah. which was exactly based on that. Um, so if the, 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 the chemistry prize was based on how to mole- manufacture the molecules that will interact with your immune system or the, um, uh, uh, you know, in order to fight cancer or, or, yeah. or, or um, vaccinate you against something. Um, uh, the two scientists that won the, the medicine prize this year, James Allison and, and Tsuko Honjo, um, uh, they develop this idea that you you could fight cancer this way. You know, if you think about, you know, cancer, what happens when our our cells turn cancerous is they kind of, they change. You know, they're they're not us in some sense anymore. There's something that that changes about them. And, of course, we've got got these very um, uh, well-tuned immune systems that are there to get rid of... um, you know, things that are attacking us, yeah. things that are different. That don't actually have our signature of the cell yeah, that belongs so, to us. Yeah, and so can you, can you train our immune system to attack cancer cells? Yeah, because um, that's the cancer's big trick, isn't it? It's they, behave, they smell, shall we say, just like all the rest of our yep, cells so yep, they can take us over. Yeah, yeah, and and, but, but they don't have that off switch, so yeah. they keep propagating, they keep growing, and that's what eventually kills us Um, and so yeah using the immune system and so a lot of new a lot of the new cancer therapies that are being developed right now a lot of the breakthroughs are coming from this idea Um, so it's been a particularly important advance Mm. Um, and and certainly you know compared to some of the the other types of treatment the other things you might face like you know um uh uh uh, the the radiation um yeah Chemotherapy. And the chemotherapy. You know, this is a relatively benign way. Mm. Of, it's some, of sometimes the it. surgery is so desperate, it has to be very invasive. And yeah. You know, it's a cost benefit sort of thing. Yep. And, and so this is, yeah. So it's so a lot of new advances and cool. um, uh, ways of fighting cancer right. using your own immune system. Good for them. Well, economics, that's not yeah. a science. That's a big, <laughs> bloody guess, isn't it? Yeah. Well, these, <laughs> yeah. We had a little bit of a debate before about, you know, is the economics, well, it is the dismal science. Let's Let's give it that. Okay. Um, and in fact, there's a bit of a, you know, it's a, it's a, it wasn't one of the original um, Nobel prizes. Um, mm. So it's called the Nobel Memorial Prize oh, okay. for economics, and it's it's funded by the the Swedish bank, uh, Royal Bank, right? So it, so it wasn't wasn't one of the original bequests of Nobel. Um, nonetheless, they you know they they get their prizes, and they and sometimes some some of the stuff is quite useful. Cool. Um, so so two winners this time. Um, uh, both from the US um, and and kind of a, not it's not obvious how they're related. One, Paul Romer, he won for um, uh, for figuring out the economics of ideas, and in particular, th- um, being able to describe mathematically about how ideas drive economic growth. Good God, that had kind of been a bit of a puzzle. Um, it was kind of a it was a fudge factor that the economists used. There was this thing called innovation, and it was just a dial. 
that they use to try and get their models right. right. Um, you know, very handy to have these yeah. these dials that you can get to adjust to the explain the past behaviour. Yeah. Um, but there wasn't they weren't it wasn't built in to how our, our models of economics actually worked. And so he did the maths for that. Wow. Um, and and a lot of our understanding, a lot of our um, you know, the way we invest in science and innovation um, from a public perspective these days is based on his ideas. Oh. Um, so for those of us in science and, and innovation that, mm. that get funding from the public, um, a lot of it's because he worked out the, the way that that contributes to the economy. All right. Um, and then the other, the other chap was um, William Nordhaus. Mm-hmm. And again, a little bit um, unrelated in some ways, but the, he worked out, he developed some of the first models about climate change and economic growth. So how do those two things interact? Because you can imagine, you know, the faster we grow our economy, the more energy we need, potentially the more carbon we put out, yeah. but then that alters the weather and maybe that damages our economy. Yeah. And so he's got these models that that, that basically couple those th- two things together. And they're the basis for how we try and think about the costs and benefits yeah. of, of adapting to cl- or, or, or putting in policies that'll fight climate change today. Yeah, gosh, it's so tricky. Sometimes I think that um, it, in order to get to a state where we could uh, make some headway, real headway uh, with climate change, uh, anthropogenic anyway, of course, yep, yep. Um, it might be to expend a lot of energy to get something really flash that's going to fix it and then put on the reverse. So yeah. it's it's hard to know. Yeah, yeah. So he's and and so his models help us understand okay. some of these policy options. Right. Um and and I I think the link between the two was 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 basically the things that are driving our economic growth long term. Oh. Um you know, so actually you know, over 10, 20 years, it's the economics of innovation that cool. drive economic growth. And again, if you stretch it out 50 years, it's going to be the economics of climate change that, yeah. that are actually going to have a big impact on the way our economy grows. So, yeah, so so the prize for really figuring out that, you know, what what are, what's the global economy going to do in the long run? Yeah. Um, the maths... Prize, the Nobel Math- Mathematics Prize. There isn't one. <laughs> no, there isn't one. <laughs> but uh, there is the Fields Medal. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm not sure if that's been announced this year. Mm. Um, so it's. I, th- I think it, it comes slightly after the Nobel Prizes. Right. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Sean. Was there anything else you wanted to add? No, that was that was it for this yep. week. Good one. Nice to have a Nobel Prize wrap and find out what they're up to in their secret laboratories. Uh, coming up, astronomy with Grant Christie, and there would be big prizes in the offing uh, with physics and astronomy. That if someone could find a dark matter thing oh, yeah. and describe it, that yep. would be a Nobel for sure, wouldn't yep. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a few things. I mean, often, we, you know, when we talk to our students, we, we, we say, if you, you figure this out, you know, there's a Nobel Prize on that. The one the one that I, I mean, I teach superconductivity, so that's that's one of the topics I teach at, at the university. Mm. And um, high-temperature superconductivity, we still don't understand the mechanism behind that. That's there's a Nobel Prize, and actually, I don't think it would take very long. Um, someone who comes up with a theory of high temperature superconductivity, that'll be a pretty rapid one, I think. Right, right, yeah. okay. And also, why j- toast with jam lands 
jam so down more often than... I think that won an Ig Nobel Prize, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so, um, okay. yeah, yeah, you can go either way, I guess. All right. Sean Handy, physicist, Auckland University. Thanks for the Nobel rap. Grant Christie and Astronomy News. And we're having a look at a beautiful documentary uh, featured at a film festival last week. And it's on Netflix now. I just happened to watch it this week, coming to the party a bit late. But, oh, I was thoroughly enamoured. We're talking about Voyager. Oh, it's fantastic. Radio Live, the weekend variety. Wireless. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Hello, Grant. Hi, Graham. I just stumbled across an astronomy documentary. I like to um, have a look at them if they look good. Um, and it was, was it on National Geographic? I had a look to see if it had other airtimes on Sky TV. They were yeah. a video provider. And um, it had its last airing, at least, you know, until they start repeating things again, uh, on, uh, yeah, the last airing today, Saturday. Yeah. Um, but I th it's on net Netflix as well. It's called The Farthest. Yeah. And one of the annoying things is that The Farthest, what the hell is that about? Sure. And you have to find out what it is about. Um, and it's about the Voyager missions, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. It goes on for about an hour and a half or two hours, yeah. and I didn't want it to stop. No. It was so good. Yeah. So many people get astronomy documentaries bung or try too hard, but this is just a charming, yeah. gorgeously shot, marvellous story. Yeah, it is fantastic. Actually, it was in the Auckland Film Festival, the last uh, film ah. festival that we featured there. And after that, it, well, I think it was the last one, and uh, then... Uh, Stardome Observatory got the um, uh, got a full dome version of it and showed mm -hmm. it in the planetarium for a while as oh. well, which was a big hit. So it's a it is a it's a wonderful, wonderful documentary, and you know, particularly you know, I mean, I was young as all that, those discoveries were being made. Um, spent a lot of time over my in younger years looking at things like Jupiter and Saturn. Yeah. Didn't bother with Uranus and. Neptune, though, you didn't see anything on them. But uh, to have those spacecraft sort of fly by and for the first time ever just reveal them is like the discovery of a new continent, essentially. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be the equivalent of the age of discovery in the sort of 16th, 15th and 16th centuries on Earth. So uh, to, it's really, it was a great privilege to be able to be a sort of spectator mm. of, of that time. And such an eloquent and... Um thoughtful, beautifully spoken class of people, when I mean class, I mean, you know, of that era, sure. um, people involved in it. They're just lovely. Just a little cut from, um, I forget who he is, but just give you a, a bit of a idea. This may in the long run be the only evidence that we ever existed. You know, when you know that about something you're working on, you treat it with great respect. Yeah, nice, because yeah. it was going to leave, the knew That's it was right. going to leave the solar system yes. and travel in interstellar space for uh, well after yeah. the Earth is gone. Yeah, and the chance of it uh, running into anything in a billion years is pretty small. So, yeah. you know, a long time after the Earth has become uninhabitable, which mm. actually might be sooner than we think, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Not wanting to put a damper on things. <laughs> Have a then, nice day. Then this... Uh, then this uh, spacecraft, uh, yeah. the two spacecraft, and New Horizons is following it. It won't overtake it in distance, yeah. I, don't, I don't think, for almost ever. But it's, um, yeah, so it's uh, it's a great story. And uh, I mean, Voyager, 
is um well there are two of them aren't there voyager that's right one and voyager, voyager two. one and two and uh the voyager two the latest news is that it's just approaching the heliopause that's where the magnetic field of the galaxy basically balances with the magnetic field of the sun and it creates a sort of a zone and they can detect that with the instruments that voyager 2's got still mm. working voyager 1's already passed through that already and it's 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 on its way past that they're traveling in almost opposite directions so right now they're the two most distant mutually distant things humanity's ever made right and they'll if just you keep really getting want there. To, if, if, if in class we'll separate you two, um, that's as about as separated as anything. That is as separated as anything we could ever do. Yeah, well, and, and the heliopause they're finding isn't uh, just a perfect sphere because they're arriving at those at different distances from the sun. That's so, the influence of the sun. Yeah, yeah. So there's actually, it's a, it's a bit, it's probably a bit egg-shaped, and this is the first probe of that because you couldn't detect it. They knew it was right. there, had to be there, Um and uh, but uh, didn't know where exactly it was. So now the Voyager 1 told them one, and Voyager 2 is currently partway through that transition into interstellar space right now. Is it still saying hello? Does it go beep? Yeah, they're still, I'm not sure. I mean, they're still getting stuff back from instruments, and that uh, I think they're expecting by about 2022 they, the instruments will all be dead. They'll be right. gradually sort of closing them down to preserve battery, but basically the batteries and energy supply runs out. They're getting further from the sun. Okay. And uh, so around about 2022, I think, they're going to... Mm. Uh, they'll be silent from then on. Okay. It's called Father, uh, The Farthest, and do check it out if you get the chance on Netflix or wherever you can find it. Um, uh, maybe to test your patience. No, I don't think so. No, this no, is... no. And also the blue what? dot thing. The thing about Sagan yeah. at the end and talking about the oh. blue dot and also the recordings on it. Yeah. Now that I found, that was a level of detail I didn't fully sort of appreciate and that mm. was Sagan's uh, son. Songs, uh, human sounds. All these and... things. What would you do if you had to go around and collect that sort of stuff yeah. and had to fit on a, effectively a, a gold LP? Yeah. An LP. And they provided a stylus. <laughs> That's right. And a phone number to get I replacements. Know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that fascinated me most about this was, um, not me, because it was a technical thing and I'm not good at those things, but it was beautifully explained. They knew, they found out that Jupiter had much harsher radiation than uh, had they'd predicted, yeah. and they were ready to launch soon, and they didn't have time to really do much about it. Um, here's the story as told from The Farthest. Two months before shipping to the Cape for launch, the scientists were predicting that the magnetic fields around Jupiter were intense enough that they would accelerate particles. Whoa, we were hearing initially 40,000 volts. That would be the end of our spacecraft. Cabling on these appendages were conductors that would take these destroying pulses and just feed them right into our systems and kill us. So we needed to ground everything. We didn't have time to go through the normal design reviews. So in order to get this protection done quickly enough, an ad hoc team was formed. And we did some things that were out of the ordinary, very out of the ordinary. I can remember asking one of the technicians to go out and buy aluminum foil. It was the only material that was available to us. Normally, our procurement of spacecraft <laughs> hardware as supplies, materials, are a much more sophisticated process. 
We're all in bunny suits actually cutting continuous strips and then cleaning them with wipes and alcohol and then finally wrapping these on all of our exterior cabling. But yeah, same material as in your Christmas turkey. Your turkey wrapping is protecting Voyager. And now, fast forward, you know, did we know whether we had done enough? And they had. And now ordinary old tinfoil bought at the shop down the road. (laughs) Tinfoil is that far out into interstellar space. Never get away with it today. No, that's amazing. Never get away with that today. Neat little story of can do. All right, we have. But the the, the launch was critical. Uh, They couldn't have delayed it because the alignment of the planet only happened about every 175 years. And that was the critical thing that they didn't. Well, they sort of realised that in the 1960s and came up with this grand traverse sort of idea. But uh, basically, the funding wasn't there. They only got the funding for the sort of trip to Saturn and Jupiter. Yeah. Um, But then they did a bit of hickory-pokery and managed to um, get uh, one of their spacecraft, Voyager 2, to carry on. And the fact that Voyager 1 went off in a different direction was because they wanted to intersect Titan mm. at, at, um, uh, out at Saturn. Yeah. So uh, in, in order to see Titan, the heaviest moon in the solar system, and with an atmosphere, they had to do that. So Voyager 1 uh, sort of dropped out of the race, yeah. basically a planetary race at that time, and Voyager 2 carried on uh, to do Neptune and Uranus. And we still haven't got any better pictures of no, those outer planets. That is the those best. are the best we still have. Yeah. And, uh, and the moons of those planets, oh my God. And now we're finding those sort of planets around other stars. Right. And so it really is uh, really quite important that uh, they sort of get some sort of mission out there to look at these things, because they're, they're very common mm. in, the, in, the, in the galaxy. I like it when the project manager uh, was asking money from Nixon, and he said, the last time this was possible, uh, Thomas Jefferson was sitting in that chair, yeah. <laughs> and he blew it. <laughs> nice one. Okay, uh, our astronomy video of the week is um, a solar flare, and these things are just one of the most amazing sights, aren't they? And they're much, much bigger than several Earths. Yeah, this is uh, these are from the NASA's Solar Dynamics Obser- Dynamic Observatory, and it's uh, I mean it's, it was taken in 2012, so it's not sort of hot off the press, so to speak, but it's a stunning uh, little piece of uh, video that uh, was shot over the actual time span. It was really was about three hours over which this event happened. Oh, thanks. I can really get that perspective. Yeah, yeah. So so we're seeing a sped up version of it. It's not actually a real time video. You could slow it down and watch it in over three hours if you had an afternoon. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, just the scale of that is, is that that event that you're seeing there is bigger than the Earth. And so it's an enormous thing. And uh, those are the sort of events that lead to these um, uh, mass ejections from the sun that uh, send particles our way. So we get hit by the space radiation, causing aurora and other effects on Earth when Mm. those particles hit our our magnetic field. Yeah. Uh, You can just get an... A link to that on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. At the top it says click here for this weekend's rundown and you will see. Uh, have the direct link and there. I'll just add that the, the, they don't yet understand the energy of what produces that. So that's still an unsolved mystery in the sort of behaviour of the sun and therefore of stars in general. So Is there a nuclear physicist in front of a blackboard it's, it's, now it's trying to work it out? It's not a nuclear, it's something to, it's a, some sort of entanglement or something like that of the magnetic field oh. uh, of the sun's atmosphere and outer layers with um, yeah, with the sort of ionised gases that make up this, uh, the outside of the sun. And, you know, it's still a... Um, we don't have a sort of clear understanding mm. or solar physicists don't. 
Okay, uh, the Hubble scope, one of the the other most amazing achievements once they put its contact lens on. Um, it's gone into hibernation after a bit of a breakdown. Yeah, they, um, it's, uh, it's run into a problem with what's called its reaction wheel. So in order to point the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, they have these little units called reaction wheels on the round the telescope. It actually got six of them. They need three to really perform properly. Um, the rest are kind of spares, but their last uh, mission to the uh, what is 2012 I think it was with the shuttle uh, replaced all the reaction wheels uh, effectively at that time so uh, that figured it would keep it going long enough to before the James Webb Space Telescope now mm. that's all been delayed so it's got a lot of pressure on the Hubble to keep ticking so basically what the problem is is that they've one of the reaction wheels has now gone on sort of Bad. Mm. Um, they they can they can actually run the telescope using just a single reaction wheel. And what these things wheels do is they can change the rate of spin. So they actually change the, um, the they change the angular momentum, and it causes the telescope to turn around. That's how they point the telescope in space oh. and make it turn in different directions. They're not using gas nozzles. They're just using these little wheels that they spin up or spin down. Really? And, and cause the telescope to move and hold its position very precisely. But if you spun it once, it would just go in a circle. It would just spin forever. You'd have to turn it once well, and turn it back. Well, di there's different tricks they can do to... They oh. can manage it, but they it's more complicated. They have tried this before. Yeah, and it depends where you are on the orbit. So they'll... If, if they can have to only run on one reaction wheel eventually, then, yeah. uh, I mean, they feel like that they, that's likely for a long time. So it's not like the Hubble's going to stop working. At the moment, it's in safe mode. In other words, it just closes down and says, hey, wait and tell me what to do. Mm. I've got a problem. And so they're now trying to figure out whether they can sort, sort it out, uh, get one of these wheels going, or how they're going to manage it with either two or one, even one uh, reaction wheel. Mm. The idea is maybe they'll go to two, if they've, only, if they've only got two that work, they'll use just a single one and keep the single one as a spare. They won't sort of overload it. Um, and they'll just have to, uh, people have to be a bit more patient in there at the time they get on the on the Hubble. Okay, mascot, this is the acronym for this Hayabusa 2 thing uh, with its landers on the asteroid Ryugu. Uh, so this is the, the third hunk of hardware that got couriered from T PB Tech, and it's on the doorstep That's of this thing. That's right, yeah. So originally there were the, there were two small ones that uh, went down and jumped around for a little while. Um, that was Minerva 1 and Min uh, Minerva 2A and Minerva 2B. Uh, they just they didn't do very much. They jumped around. It was showed it was possible and so on. Mascot was a bit more sophisticated. There was a European, the uh, German... Uh, lander and it uh, also jumped around it sent back some good pictures um, there's a lot more being processed that we haven't actually been seen yet they've been released uh, it worked for 17 hours um, which was pretty much what it was intended to do and it had a little thing so it could jump around and go to different places so um, so now the next project at the end of this month is that uh, Hayabusa is going to be uh, releasing two more uh, little landers that will go down um, onto the... Uh, God, how many has it got? No, I beg your pardon. I'll, I'll, I'll correct myself there. It, it itself is going to go down, oh, touch I down, see. grab right. something. Um, so it's currently parked. I think about um, sort of... I think it's, it's reasonably close uh, anyway. To, it's orbiting the uh, asteroid. Mm. Um, I think it's it's sitting at about 20 kilometres. It was at 60, so now it's sort of just orbiting this tiny little one-kilometre-sized asteroid uh, from about 20 kilometres. So it's then going to go down, and when it touches the surface, 
It's going to grab the samples at once and then come back off again, mm. um, return to its orbit around the asteroid and stay there till the end of next year. So it's not leaving the asteroid. So it's going to do a lot more imaging. We haven't seen much of the really good imaging. They've been, I guess, focused on doing all this complicated little dance with their landers. Once that's done, we'll get start getting some, I think, some really good pictures of it and really, you know, like full 3D maps of the surface of this object. Um, and then it'll, after that, it'll leave the asteroid behind, return to Earth, and as it passes Earth, it'll drop canisters down that have those, you know, extremely valuable samples in them. Wow. So those canisters, that, I, I take those canisters have got quite a hard outside. Yeah, yeah, hopefully they won't just burn. <laughs> I think they might have thought of that. Yeah. But, yeah, so they, they drop them down and then uh, I think uh, I understood that they were aiming for the middle of Australia somewhere oh, as right. a place to land them. Yeah. Because at least you can walk around and find it uh, if it's in the yeah. sea. That well, wouldn't be too good, NASA would it? Well, I think set the policy of that when they dropped uh, Skylab into the middle of Australia. They, they got sued for littering. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No kidding. <laughs> anyway, so it's very yeah. exciting. So, uh, yeah, it takes about a year from the end of next year, end of 2019. It'll take about a year to get back to Earth. And in uh, 20, uh, so late 2020, mm. it's going to be uh, dropping those uh, that little package off for us. That's going to be very exciting. Okay, now uh, a barn doorstop. <laughs> Who does this? You get stories like this every now and again, don't you? I didn't realise it was worth that much as he held it, um, a kilogram of cocaine to the, <laughs> to the face of someone on Antiques Roadshow. Okay, a barn doorstep is actually a meteorite worth $100,000. Yeah, this has uh, happened in the state of Michigan in the United States, uh, but there has been a similar case here in New Zealand, uh, uh, almost exactly the same sort of situation. So this guy was buying a farm uh, and... Uh, turned out there was this sort of very heavy rock being used as a doorstep, mm. um, a, a, a doorstop, and it, uh, and the, the guy that was selling the farm knew it was a meteorite, but was he had actually had it come down, and, and they, him and his son, years before, had heard it hit the ground, oh, and God, they'd gone really? and sort of dug it up and uh, sort of kept it, hadn't really done anything about it, so it went with the farm. The, uh, the new owner then took it to a local university uh, who uh, were absolutely amazed. They confirmed it was actually a, a nickel-iron meteorite. You don't find nickel and iron all merged together in a body on natural rocks on Earth, but you do... It, but no, but it's, a, it's a, almost a guaranteed litmus test that this is an asteroid, wow. a meteorite that's come down. So it's... Uh, so uh, they, the scientists were very pleased. They reckon it was one of the most exciting things they'd actually had in their hand. Um, the guy's not decided whether he wants to sell it. He might uh, donate it or, or sort of lend it, out, lend it out for display. Mm. Um, I'm not sure what you'd do. That's 100,000 US dollars. What's that, about 160,000 Kiwi if you put yeah. it on the market? Who's, who would buy it? Uh, collectors, uh, museums, right. um, scientific organisations. Right. Um, in New Zealand, the meteorites are covered by the Antiquities Act. So really? you can't just find a meteorite and uh, you can't sell it overseas for a start. Uh, one hit a uh, house in Ellerslie in uh, Auckland in 2005, I think it was, and uh, went through the roof. And that's the Auckland Museum purchased that off them. 
but they had higher offers offshore for it. I mean, because any meteorite that has a good story attached to it, like this one it in came Michigan, the roof, yeah. it came through the roof. It uh, you know, and p people picked it up immediately. Yeah. Uh, then it was uh, then that hugely increases the value to collectors around the world. Right. So, was it warm when they picked it up? Oh yeah. yeah. How yeah, amazing. Yeah, well, yeah, I sort of saw it within probably an hour or so of uh, that happening, and uh, it was cooled off by then. Mm. But it's a beautiful piece. It's in the Auckland uh, Museum, but it's just sitting with um, volcanic rocks okay. with a very nondescript display. You'd have to know what you're looking for to find it. Oh. If, you're going, if you're going to the Auckland Museum and you want to see the meteorite, mm. um, the, it's called the Auckland Meteorite. All right. Um, and uh, ask somebody there, one of the... Um, information people and they might be able to direct you but it's in the volcanic rock section where okay. they've got all sorts of you know, it's not a volcanic no. rock right but hey <laughs> should we have a word to the curator and say yeah. up you go yeah, it's about the size of a grapefruit beautiful beautiful specimen yeah all right um what's in the night sky just had a look at big red last night and uh the, mars is looking marvelous oh yes almost straight overhead so early in the evening straight up above your head you can't miss it if even if you don't know the sky the bright red thing is mars so that's the first thing to get down near the horizon in the southwest uh, after the sky's got a bit darker the very bright object is venus mm. venus is in its orbit is now going round. it's heading to it'll pass behind the sun uh, in a month or so, so at the moment it's quite rapidly each night is moving closer and closer to the horizon where the sun is, is uh, so or below the horizon where mm. the sun is, and uh, so we won't see it again. Then it'll appear in the eastern sky. Um, it'll be the morning star. It'll become the morning star, exactly. So it's been a beautiful display. Um, if you come up the sky from from uh, Venus, you'll see Jupiter. So this is a, this is a time when you see all the bright naked eye planets at once. Mm. Um, the only one missing is uh, Mercury. Mm. But uh, later this month, you'll actually be able to pick up Mercury very low in the western sky. But anyway, so the next one up is Jupiter, which is tawny colour, nowhere near as bright as Venus, uh, but still it's actually bright. It's mm. just sort of not as bright as Mars either at the moment. Mars is unusually bright because it's relatively close. And then you have, in between Mars and uh, Jupiter, you've got Saturn. So... All right. If you've got a telescope, go look at them. Otherwise, visit your local observatory uh, mm. uh, and go and sort of get a look at those planets because mm. they're very well placed for looking at at the moment. If I've got time, I might play a little bit from the story of the making of the golden record of human sounds that is now in interstellar space, which is an astounding thing. But uh, we'll leave you with a little, another little sample from Father. This is the story of the Voyager missions, Voyager 1 and 2, talking about their fate. This may in the long run be the only evidence that we ever existed. You know, when you know that about something you're working on, you treat it with great respect. The thrill of the discoveries, reaching the heliopause, completing the grand tour. I mean, man, our child just made it. Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 will be orbiting the center of the Milky Way galaxy with all the stars. And every 200 and roughly 50 million years, it will complete an orbit around the center of the Milky Way galaxy. There's no wind, water, rain, weathering. There's no planets they're going to run into. There's no asteroid belts or comets that they're going to run into. And over thousands, millions, billions of years, it's, they're predicted to remain pretty intact. 
From Voyager's standpoint, the sun is just the brightest star in the sky. Not by very much. Years to come, it'll fade into being just one of all the other stars in the galaxy. And from time to time, over the eons, a star will sort of approach and get brighter, and then it'll get dimmer again. It's like being in a lifeboat on the Atlantic at night. Maybe you see a distant ship pass, maybe you don't. That's the future of Voyager for billions of years to come. All of the human tragedies and the worries and concerns that drive you and I and everyone will be long forgotten. And our existence as a species and the greatest triumphs, the things that people think of are the most important things in their life, all of that's going to be forgotten. And the universe doesn't care about it. But it's possible that at least one thing we've created will be out there, and who knows, maybe someday, with an infinitesimally small chance, another being might find it and at least know of our existence. It's highly unlikely, but it's not impossible. And that small possibility surely gives us hope. We will continue to get signals back from Voyager, and we will continue to try and get signals back from Voyager as long as we can. There will be a day when the antennas are listening to Voyager, and we don't hear anything. Will be the day that we stop communications with Voyager. And that'll be very sad because whether it's 45 years or 55 years or 50 years from when we launched it, uh, it'll be very, very sad because um, it will have gone silent. And we really won't have a chance to say goodbye. The Weekend Variety Wireless Where's Grant Smithy's gone, you may have asked. Uh, he's taking a break while we've been filling up the Shipwreck Tale archives because a few uh, fell overboard. And this week, a special guest. It's JC Carroll of the Members. He's playing in Auckland on Friday the 19th, this coming Friday at the Thirsty Dog. Who is he? He was the founder member of and songwriter with the Members. Uh, you may recall solitary confinement. He's playing solo and he's telling stories behind the songs. You'll hear a few stories behind the songs between 11 and 12. Grant Smithies will be back next week unless something crazy happens and having a look at Linton Queasy Johnson's debut album, Dread Beaten Blood, which is a marvellous thing. In fact, there are some parallels between Linton Queasy Johnson and the members, JC Carroll, after 11 o'clock. I think I'll have time in the next hour uh, to play a little bit more from this lovely Voyager documentary. I said it was on Netflix. It ain't. Sorry. Uh, you can hunt away, uh, use, use your skills on the internet to try and find it. It's called The Farthest. Marvellous thing it was at the film festival last year. Okay. New sport and weather coming up next. <laughs> 